Pastor Leonard Ravenhill uh, told the story of a, of a tour group of Americans uh, that had, were touring the British Isles. I don't remember if they were in Scotland or, or Ireland, but on their travels they came to one of those very picturesque ancient villages that just seems like time forgot, but still just a very ancient way of life. And this city dweller um, walked up to an old man who was sitting by an old fence outside of that village and thinking himself witty, I think. He asks this old man, were any great men born in this little village? And the old man didn't miss a beat, and he answered, nope, only babies. And that's a great answer, because... There never once yet has there ever been a great man or a great woman born. Only babies. And what every baby grows into remains to be seen. But growth takes time, and growing up is hard. People are mean. We have awkward stages. We think we know more than we do, and we learn lessons the hard way. We're not dealt the same hand everyone else gets dealt. Growing up is hard. If you've raised kids, you know the frustration of wondering, when is this kid ever going to learn some responsibility, right? What do you think frustrated your parents so much? The same thing. When I was teaching in my classroom, I had a sign hanging up. It's probably still hanging in a classroom in Lee's Summit, Missouri right now. It said this, learn to want to do what you need to do. That was my own effort at a pithy saying about growing up. Isn't that a lot of what it means to learn, to grow up? At some point, we have to learn that if I only do what I feel like doing, if I only do what I want to do at the moment, before long, my life is not going to feel very good. I've got to learn to want to do what I need to do, even if what I need to do at the moment doesn't feel like something I want to do, right? But growing up is hard. And this is true in some ways of our faith also. We're supposed to grow in our faith. We're supposed to mature in our faith. I've said often that coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ is not the finish line of the Christian life. It's the starter pistol. It's a, it's a huge moment. Don't get me wrong. I want everyone here to come to understand, to receive the gift that Christ offers at the cross, that He died the death I deserve, and that there's this free gift of eternal life that's offered only through trusting in Him. That, is, that gets me what's called justification. That's how God changes the way He looks at me. When God looks at me, because I believe in Jesus, He no longer sees the sinful me who's done all the stupid things that I've done. I look righteous to him because I've been justified. But my sanctification process is just that. It's a process. It's this lifelong process where I hopefully am growing up in the faith, maturing. Little by little, more and more, my my. My life, my attitudes, my words, my responses growing more and more into the likeness 
of Jesus. It's a process. It's slow. It can be frustrating. But it's something I'm supposed to desire, and so are you. We're starting a new book this morning, the book of James, and it's, it's a sanctification book. It's about growing up in the faith. If, if I could give a subtitle to our study through the book of James, which I normally don't. I usually call it things like our study through the book of James because that's what it is. But I would steal a, a, a title of a chapter in a book by Warren Wearsby from years ago. And that chapter was entitled, It's Time to Grow Up. That's the book of James. It's frustrating. Have you ever been frustrated when you've made the same mistake again? Have you ever been frustrated that you're, you're not like better in some way? A man named William Law wrote a book called Courage, and just one little quote, it's out of its context, but he writes, he's talking in this passage about uh, the person who thinks, man, I wish I was as devoted as those early Christians, the heroes of the faith are. And he says this, if you stop and ask yourself why you are not so devoted as those early Christians, your own heart will tell you that it's neither through ignorance nor inability, but purely because you never thoroughly intended it. Now listen, you cannot do your sanctification process because Jesus has to do that through us. It's a gift also. But it's a gift we must intend to receive. As we'll see, even this morning, we can thwart it. We mess it up. This is something... Growing up in the faith is something in a weird way we can't do, but we have to desire for it to happen. We have to want to put it on for Him to have His way. Well, what if? What if, church, you and I, as individuals, as families, as couples, as, but as mainly as individuals, what if over the next five months or so, between now and next spring, as we go through the book of James, what if we thoroughly intend to grow up in this faith? What might be different? What might change? That's what the book of James is about. It's about spiritual maturity. And I want that for me, and I want that for you. I want that for us. What do you say? When the, when the tulips come up next spring, what if we can look back from this day and say, that was a day I intended to grow in this thing. We're going to read the first four verses of the book of James as our jumping off point this morning. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and they read this way. James, a bond servant of God... And of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's all we're going to study this morning. We begin in verse 1 where 
we get that all of the introductory material James gives us. We learn the audience, or excuse me, the author, the audience, and the occasion for writing this letter. The James who writes this book, there are three Jameses in the New Testament, at least that I can think of right now. Two of them were original disciples of Jesus. Um, most famously, James, the brother of John, like Jesus' three closest disciples were Peter, James, and John. James and John were the, the sons of Zebedee, nicknamed by Jesus, the sons of thunder. This is not that James. The other James is James, the son of Alphaeus, not that James. This James, though, does show up in the Gospels. He is the brother of Jesus. I usually call him the half-brother of Jesus because James and Jesus, they had the same mama. Uh, the Gospels are clear that, that Joseph and Mary had other children, uh, sons and daughters. Uh, but Jesus had a different dad. His biological dad was God. He was conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit. Then by the book of Acts, and we even met him some as we studied Galatians, this James grew into what we would call the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And he became a very important and influential man uh, in the early church. He was not one of the original apostles, but he was like a colleague of the original apostles. He, Paul called him one of the pillars of the church, which is a crazy thing to say about someone who was not one of the original apostles. But what's most amazing to me about who James grew into in the book of Acts is who James had been in the Gospels. Because the Gospels are clear. Mark 3 and in the Gospel of John, that James was not a supporter of his brother Jesus. John says it probably the most clearly when he's talking about people who rejected Jesus. John wrote, for not even Jesus' own brothers believed in him. And there's a scene in Mark where where James wants to get Jesus off of the, the, the ministry field. Like you're embarrassing us. Like claiming to be the Son of God and the Messiah and all that stuff. So... How does a guy go from rejecting Jesus to then writing a letter and calling himself a slave or a servant of Jesus and calling him the Lord Jesus Christ? And I got to tell you, I don't, I don't blame James for resenting Jesus when, they were, when he was younger. The old joke goes, like, what would it take for you to believe that your brother was God, right? It would take some serious convincing, right? Or how about this? If any of you grew up in a family with an older sibling who was very high achieving and you felt like you had a hard time getting out of his or her shadow of all their success, well, Try being the little brother of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who's literally perfect. I don't blame James for resenting Jesus, but what changed him? What changed him into a pillar of the church of Jesus Christ? The answer comes to us in 1 Corinthians when Paul says this, then Jesus appeared to James. Here's what changed Jesus. Excuse me, here's what changed Jesus. James. His brother Jesus was beaten to the point where he was horribly disfigured, executed on a cross, had a sword shoved through the side of his dead corpse, was buried, and then at some point later, he showed up again to James. Like, hey, what's up, bro? The resurrection is what changed James. This is one of the things that makes the resurrection so believable because the resurrection changed people like the Apostle Paul from someone who hated the idea of Jesus to being willing to die for Jesus. Did the same thing for James. History tells us James is executed for believing that Jesus rose from the dead and preaching that as a part of the gospel. So that's our author. The audience 
James says he writes to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. 12 tribes is a nickname for Israel. So James writes to Jewish people, but not just any Jewish people. We will see throughout the book, James writes to Jewish people who also believe in Jesus. He calls them brothers or brethren there. And we can tell they are believers in Christ. So James very specifically writes to Jewish Christians. And James writes to only Jewish Christians. And if that seems narrow or bigoted, I don't want you to think that James wrote to the exclusion of Gentile Christians. It's just when James wrote this letter, it was so early in Christianity, there, there weren't any. This is the earliest book written in our New Testament. It's written so early, a Jewish Christian was the only kind that there was. If you know the book of Acts, this is an Acts 1 through 9 letter. Um, James is going to write some things that we will get to that it's hard to reconcile with Galatians. It just is. And James takes some heat because he didn't reconcile with Pauline theology. One reason he didn't is because there wasn't one. If Paul was a Christian when James wrote this book, he was a baby Christian that hadn't started his career yet. And the reason he writes this letter or the occasion for him writing this letter is hinted at right here. These Jewish Christians have been dispersed abroad. Very early in the days of Christianity, there's a man named Stephen, himself a Jewish man, came to know Jesus as Savior, starts proclaiming the gospel. He gives this large sermon in Jerusalem, and the, the Jews who reject Jesus are so angry that they stone Stephen to death on the spot. And immediately after that, a great persecution, an organized persecution of the Jews who accepted Jesus was started by the Jews who rejected Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jerusalem was a very dangerous place for a Jewish Christian to be. And so these Jews ran away for their safety. Uh, they lost their livelihoods. They lost their jobs. They were disowned by their families. So they had to go look for someplace else to live where they could survive. James stayed, but he's writing to the ones who had to run away. And what he writes is it's time to grow up. He writes to people who are in, for us, unthinkably difficult circumstances. Try to put yourself in the early Christian's shoes. If you've always lived right here in Imperial, Nebraska, in a time where there's no phones, there's no email, there's no way to communicate. Your family disowns you. You cannot work. And the only way to survive is to go someplace you've never seen and start over, maybe never to see your loved ones again. And James says, man, if you're going to get through that, you better mature in this faith of ours. Now, can we Gentile Christians learn a thing or two from a book like that? You better believe it. If you want to mature in your faith, the first lesson James has for you this morning is this. Enduring trials well will really help that goal. Enduring trials well brings spiritual maturity. That's the main idea for really the first section of the book of James, definitely for this sermon. And we see that in verses 2 through 4. And the first thing James writes in the body of his letter, which is verse 2, is something that on its face is completely ridiculous. Check this out. He says, I must have clicked something. Here we go. Verse 2 is coming, I promise. There we go. Enduring trials well brings spiritual maturity. Verse 2, James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. 
Does that sound ridiculous? If it doesn't at least sound ridiculous, you're probably not being honest. One reason it sounds ridiculous is because we don't necessarily understand what James means by all joy. He says, consider, count, reckon it all joy when you encounter various trials. Now, all joy does not mean what it might sound like to us. All joy doesn't mean exclusively joy. In other words, James is not saying that when you find yourself in any kind of trial, the only thing you should feel is joy. Now that would be ridiculous. And it's not what he's saying. Jesus promised us trials. Jesus promised us suffering. If you are going through something and you do not feel pain, you do not feel sadness, and you do not feel loss, I don't know what you're going through, but it ain't suffering. Because suffering implies the presence of those things, right? That's what it means to suffer. So whatever all joy means, it can't mean you are doing something wrong if you're not happy while you suffer, if you feel pain, hurt, loss. What all joy means is that during that process, there is something that we can call all joy in the midst of that. It's true joy. It's deep joy. It's still real joy, even during something that hurts and hurts a lot. James says that when we encounter trials, and we will, we need to, this is, a, this is an accounting word. It's a financial word. This says consider. Your Bible might say reckon. Your Bible might say count. Count is a good math word. What James is saying is when you are in a trial, there's got to be a way for you to place that trial not just in the debit column, but in the credit column on your ledger sheet. You know what I mean? You, you've got to be able to count that as at least in part positive. If you're going to grow, if you're going to mature through a trial, you have to be able to somehow say there's something good here. There's something that would bring joy here. And this is very unnatural. Because the most natural thing when we get into a situation where it's a trial, where there's pain, where there's loss, where there's suffering, the most natural thing is to count it, reckon it all as an outrage. To count the whole thing as, as, as a loss, as an outrage, as the worst. Only a tragedy. And James says, if you're going to grow, when you encounter a trial, you've got to figure out how to put, figure out how this goes in the other column, at least in part, in spite of the pain. But how do we do that? How is that even possible? Well, it's possible, verse 3, because you know this. The testing of your faith produces perseverance. Or your Bible might say endurance. There's an important word here. Dr. Douglas Moo, in his commentary over James, talks about this word testing. And he says that the, the Greek word that gets translated testing here is a word that's used in the refining process for gold or for silver. It's what shows or brings the value out. I've never mined for gold or silver, but I understand when you get it out of the ground, it, there's a lot of stuff that's not valuable mixed in with the stuff you really want. And so if you get that super, super hot, you can separate what's worthless from what's valuable. That's testing it. It's to bring what's valuable to the surface. That's how James uses this word. Because the painful trial, the scary thing, the difficult 
thing refines, it shows the value of this faith we have. It shows that the faith I have is more valuable than my comfort, than my plans, than my desires. There's something in here that's more valuable than my circumstances. The story has been told of, of a dad who takes his little girl out for a walk. You know, they're going somewhere, and his little four-year-old daughter, with her little four-year-old brain and her little four-year-old legs, thinks it's a better idea to get too far ahead of daddy out on this street. And he keeps saying, you've got to get back here. Honey, you're getting too far away. But you know, in her brain, it seems like it would be better for me to be. Dad can't, shouldn't be able to tell me what to do, right? Until a rather large and intimidating dog comes around the corner in her path. And all of a sudden, being with daddy doesn't seem so lame anymore. She cries out for her daddy. She has a desire for her daddy because of the presence of the dog that she didn't have before the dog showed up. And so she runs for her daddy. She cries out for her daddy. She wants to be held and protected by her daddy. That's why our sovereign God allows trials, at least in part. Because in our little legs and in our little brains, we oftentimes forget the best place for us to be is where we never leave is where we run to when life gets scary. It shows These trials show the value of being held by daddy and the faith that allows us to be with daddy. And James tells us that one positive thing that trials can produce is perseverance or endurance. If I I go through a trial well, if I press into him and I appreciate him as he holds me, the next time one comes, if nothing else, I know I survived that last thing. Man, I can do this too. I will still feel pain, but there's this joy that reminds me of whose I am and where I belong and where life is best. I can learn I will endure because I'm being held by the one who will endure. And it can remind me when the trial eases, that's still the best place to be. I'll feel pain, I'll feel weakness, but I will have joy. Understanding the value that I have in Christ through faith. Did you know that lifting weights doesn't make you stronger? It's true. Not a joke. Lifting weights, doing push-ups, actually hurts your muscles. And this is not, I'm serious, I can prove this to you. Right now, well, don't do it right now. But when we're done here, here's what I want you to do to prove that your pastor's honest with you. Find yourself an open spot of floor and just dive in and start doing push-ups. It won't take very long for you to realize, I don't think these push-ups are making my muscles stronger. Your muscles will actually be getting what? Weaker. Until the point where you can't even do a single push-up. Why? Because you've been doing push-ups. Because what happens microscopically, the muscle fibers on the cellular level, little tiny tears are happening in your muscle that's hurting your muscle. Before long, it will shut down. If it's been a while since you've done push-ups, when you wake up tomorrow, if you do that today, you will say, I think pastor's on to something. This, was, this did not help me. This hurt me. I can feel the evidence of the damage. And it's true. If you wait till the pain goes away and you try push-ups again, you know what? You won't notice yourself being any stronger than you were today when you tried. But 
if you keep putting your muscle through that trial, the damage, the pain, eventually your body will respond. And your body will go, man, I better heal those little tears plus interest. Because I need more if I'm going to survive what this lunkhead is putting me through. And that's what trials do. When I am going through something that tears, that hurts, that rips me up, if I respond the right way, though it is not good for me, it can be good for me. Which is why James writes what he writes in verse 4. He says, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you'll be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. There is a really important word at the beginning of verse 4, and it's this word right here, let. It's a command, by the way. Let endurance have its perfect result. God in His sovereignty has a reason that he allows you to go through the trial you may be trying to endure. Part of that purpose is your growth and growing endurance within you. But if you are commanded to let the endurance happen, that means you cannot let that result happen. Going through trials doesn't do anything for our spiritual maturity. Because we can go through trials and not let God's purpose happen in our lives. That's why I say enduring trials well brings spiritual maturity. We can thwart His purpose. And letting endurance have its its perfect result, it takes time. It takes patience. And when we are in the midst of a trial, if you are like me, what you want to know, I want to know God's purpose for this right now. How many of you have ever had a conversation like this? Tell me why God, if there's a God out there so good, tell me why he would allow whatever this is. If that, if that person is a Christian, they're in danger of not letting God's purpose be realized in their life. He has a purpose. And I want him to tell me also, but he doesn't owe that to me. Part of growing in this faith is understanding, I don't know why, but I know you must. And I'm going to press into you. And I'm going to be on your lap and trust you are holding me through this. When a trial starts, our our natural, our normal instinct is to focus on how we can get out of the trial more than focusing on what we might get out of the trial. It's most naturally, what we want to do is escape from the trial more than we want God to have His way with us through the trial. If God is sovereign and he has brought me into that thing, maybe escaping it isn't actually best. And we do not get the endurance God's promise if we only work to escape, to blame, to complain. Because we have to let endurance have its way. James writes that that the trial and the resulting endurance that can be ours can make us, get this, perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. Now raise your hand if you consider yourself perfect and complete and not deficient in anything. Anybody willing to uh, stand in that gap? That seems like a high bar, doesn't it? Well, it is. And I want you to know, We're never going to get there in this life. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. You're going to get there. But not while you're being sanctified. There's another churchy word. It's when you are glorified. 
Someday when you're with Jesus, you'll be made like Jesus and you'll be perfect and complete and not deficient in anything. But this book is about our sanctification process while we are here. This book's about growth, strengthening, maturing in our faith. You remember this slide from the Galatians study? I borrowed this with permission from Lincoln Berean Church. The book of Galatians was primarily about Paul defending justification being by faith, right? Alone. I used to think where it works, I used to think the way God, I could make God like, like me is by being a good guy, being better than most, obeying the rules, whatever. At some point, you learned that's not true. I deserve death, punishment, wrath, but Jesus absorbed that for me and I accepted or you accepted the free gift of eternal life that comes through Christ Jesus and bammo, instantly, you got something before God you had never had for one second of your entire life. You got righteousness. And that righteousness you have by faith is completely perfect because it's Jesus' righteousness given to you. It's not yours. And one weakness of this slide is that this righteousness should be infinitely high, like 12 bazillion stories in the, in the, in the sky. That's how righteous we are. And it never wavers but I'm still down here with my same old attitudes and behaviors. And the words that come out of my mouth don't sound like what Jesus would say. My responses are not turn the other cheek, pray for your enemies, bless those who curse you. This Christian living thing, that's, that's sanctification. That's what the book of James is about. It's this line right here. Sanctification is just this process by which my real life down here, slowly, step by step, bit by bit, the righteousness I have in Christ begins to bleed into my words, my attitudes, my behaviors down here. My positional righteousness I have in Christ begins to be matched more and more by my condition down here. James says that is becoming perfect and complete and not deficient in anything. If you want to grow in this faith, we've got to stop this. I know I'm not going to be perfect, so why even try? Is this a high bar to be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything? Of course. But we don't just say, well, I've got that, that legal righteousness through my justification, so nothing down here matters. That's ridiculous. Even in Galatians, Paul said, you're going to reap what you sow. That's going to be a nightmare. Don't do that. And I know I cannot be perfect and complete and not deficient in anything, but I should still desire that. And it can be like this. Okay, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I'm not complete. I have plenty of deficiencies. But in this difficult conversation I'm about to have, I can do it now. And in this situation I have to deal with, I can be perfect and complete and not deficient in anything just for the next 15 minutes. God, have your way in me. And where I blow it, praise God, I'm still justified. My, my positional righteous, righteousness has not wavered a bit. And I crawl right up on daddy's lap and I, oh, I blew that again. I hate it when I do that. And he says, yes, my son. Yes, my girl. I still, I still love you. I'm glad you are here with me. This is where you need to be. It's a high bar. In some ways, it's unreachable. But guys, it's supposed to be the goal. It's a good desire to see him having his way in me. But it does take patience. And listen. 
if I really want to grow in this thing, and if the Bible is correct that trials can help me grow, then apparently in some way the trial can be good and I can count it joy. If what I need is to grow up in this faith and a trial can help me do that, then I guess let it rain, Lord. If it's what drives me into the lap of Daddy, so be it. But it takes patience. It takes endurance to grow endurance. Do you know that until we learn patience, we can't learn anything? You ever thought about that? See, part of our problem is we want to feel better now. So I do what I want that'll make me feel good right now. We have to have patience to learn patience to get to endurance. Think of the little kid, uh, the little girl's trying to, to learn math. Until she learns the patience to sit down and memorize the, her times tables and her addition and subtraction tables, until she learns the, the patience to sit down and try, she can't learn the math. Isn't that true? Little boy who is learning to read, until he learns the patience to sit down and try to read, he can't learn to read. Same is true for us in our spiritual life. Until we learn to wait, until we learn to wait with him and walk with him, we don't get what he has planned for us to give us through the trials. If all we do is escape and complain and blame. As if the sole reason for my discomfort is the ignorance of my boss or my friend or the coach or my spouse. They're the reason I feel like this. When you are thinking and feeling those things, do this for me. Point your finger at God and say the same things to Him because He's the sovereign who allowed what you're going through. And He didn't do it so you would learn what a jerk that other person is. He's got a better purpose if you let it happen. When we don't, or why we don't, there's some barriers to spiritual maturity. You can look, think of these all the way through the book of James. If you want to grow spiritually, one barrier to that is thinking I don't need to. <laughs> thinking I've matured already, which is a sure sign you're pretty immature. And I don't know how else to say that. Because the line we are aiming for is infinite righteousness. A close cousin to that one, another barrier to spiritual maturity, a very close cousin, is a continual focus on the lack of maturity in someone else. They're the ones that need this. That's the one who needs to grow. Because see, I compare so favorably to that other person that I'm okay how I am. I can only be responsible for putting on my own maturity. I can be an asset to someone else. I can. But I'm responsible for only mine. And we learn this in Galatians 2. No one else can keep my spiritual maturity from happening. Do you know that? The only thing someone else can do is present another trial, which brings us right back to the main idea. It gives me something else to endure, that if I endure it correctly, it will bring spiritual maturity. So that person who really, really gets at you, the only thing they can do is give you another opportunity to mature spiritually. So what do you say? Between now and when the surprise lilies appear, what if we decide it's time to grow up in this faith thing? What if we decided 
I don't even know what spiritual maturity means or looks like, but I think I want it and I determine to do whatever it takes to get it, to let him have his way in me so that the development of my own character suddenly becomes more important than my comfort. My responses to discomfort and pain become more important to me than pointing out the cause of my pain. So the future becomes more important than my present. That's how we count joy during trials and let endurance have its perfect effect. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, the book of James seems like it's going to be kind of (laughs) difficult. But I praise you that you are the one who has done all the hard work. We just have to let it happen in us. We have to get out of our own way and your way and let the endurance that you desire for us happen. God, I pray for the next five months or so that you would work in our lives to mature us, to grow us, to teach us the patience to let it happen, to take you for your word that you have a better purpose even during our pain. And I pray you would be glorified in all the results. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, as we approach the table, the one we are approaching and communing with, the Lord Jesus, is the one who showed us how to do his brother's book. Jesus Christ fell on his face in the garden and said, Father, I don't want to do this. And the author of Hebrews tells us why he did it. You know why? For joy. Seems like a crazy thing to say. He endured the cross because of joy. The joy that was set before him. And so this morning, as the bread comes around, Linda's going to play a little bit. I just want you to spend some time with yourself and the Lord. You can think about it. Man, where do I need to grow? How have I been doing this wrong? Do I need to grow? Is it time for me to grow up? And think of the one who showed you how it was done. To go through the severest of trials for the joy set before him. That joy is ours. If we'll let it. Father, as the men come forward to pass out the symbol of your son's body, I pray that you would impress upon us how we need to grow and grow in us a growing thankfulness of the one who showed us how to go through trials for the joy that was set before him. Commune with us in his name. Amen. The night that Jesus was betrayed... Luke tells us, when the hour had come, he he reclined at table, and the apostles were with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus knew he was going to suffer for joy. The joy in there is we're going to do this again, boys. We're going to do this again in the kingdom. What I go through is going to be worth it. What we go through is going to be worth it. If we go through it well down here, it'll even be worth it down here. At night, He had taken some bread and given thanks and he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
Our Father, as the cup comes around, help us to remember that by your blood we are forgiven, that we will be glorified, and we can look forward to the joy that is set before us that you earned in our place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thou found and in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten saying this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood but behold the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. Jesus was facing the worst trial. But his life hadn't spun out of control. It it was determined. It, It was the road the Father had for him. And if he walked it well, for the joy put before him, he would see it was all worth it in the end. Was that true for him? Now the hard part. Is it true for you? Is it true for me? What is symbolized in this cup guarantees you the forgiveness of sin if you receive it. And it also guarantees that there is always something better ahead in remembrance of him. Thank you for being here this morning. Come back. We'll keep growing in James. Love you guys. See you next week.